Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Ahead of the next Milken Institute Global Conference in May, we look back at some of the issues that were top of mind at its last global gathering in October. BMO Capital Markets CEO Dan Barkley joined a 2021 Milken Institute Global Conference panel to discuss how changing behaviors will be key to a low-carbon future. The panelists discussed how stakeholders, ranging from investors to consumers, employees and suppliers, must play a fundamental role in the success of a sustainable future. Please welcome the panel on Investing in a Sustainable Business Transition, moderated by Milken Institute Senior Director, Caitlin McLean. Excellent. Good morning, everyone. Excited to see you all in person. Thank you for coming to this first main session of the day. It's part of our sustainability track here at the Milken Institute, an increasingly bigger percentage of the, of the program here at Global Conference. So we're excited for this, this session in particular when we're talking about how do we get to invest in a company's transition towards sustainability. Obviously, sustainability as a topic has become uh, increasingly of interest to our communities, to our companies. We've just gone through a pandemic, still going through a pandemic, and uh, have seen a whole host of of climate-related weather events over the past few years, so increasingly feeling the effects of of not being sustainable as as communities um, and and as businesses. So we're really going to focus today thinking about what are the actions and the investments that we need to be making now probably needed to be making 10 years ago, but really need to be making now to make that transition and hit the the Paris goals and the net zero goals that many companies have. You've probably seen nearly daily that uh, another company comes out and pledges to be net zero by 2040, 2050, which is very exciting. We're seeing investors increasingly interested in using ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors to the tune of probably in the next few years, $50 trillion in assets under management globally. So obviously, it's a very important time right now and an inflection point for us. So the panelists that you have here are truly experts in this space and represent um, a word that that has certainly become a buzzword recently, which which are really the stakeholders of of sustainability. So um, you all have their bios in in your programs, so we're not going to go through um, a long uh, introduction, uh, but as I go to each of the panelists, I'll just give a a quick overview of of who they are and and where they're coming from. But to give the the kind of high-level overview, Hiro, if I can go to you first, uh, Hiro Mizuno, for those of you who don't know, but I'm sure that you do, um, is the special envoy to the United Nations uh, Secretary General for Innovative Finance and Sustainable Investing. He was formerly the CIO of the uh, government 
pension fund of Japan, uh, 1.6, 1.7 trillion. <laughs> he said, no, that's an important six point versus seven uh, trillion dollars um, that he managed. Um, he also sits on a few corporate boards. So Hiro, talk to us as you've seen, you're such a champion of this space and of having people not only be educated, but really start to, to uh, move towards action. So we'd love to hear about what you're seeing in terms of progress. We've talked, you know, and heard about kind of some of the challenges in data, disclosures, kind of global frameworks, and, and how companies are really thinking about this. So give us a high-level overview of what you've seen over the past couple of years and what you're excited to see moving forward. Sure. Thank you very much. It's my honor to join this panel with the other distinguished panelists. And uh, you forgot to mention I'm a special advisor to Milken Institute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's your most important yes. role, clearly. <laughs> so um, well, here we are gathering to discuss how to save the world. But the, uh, at least we are saving the Thai industry today. <laughs> I've never seen this many Thais over the last 18 months. Um, You know, somebody, you know, some people call me like a Mr. ESG or like a ESG whatever, uh, but my ESG journey started seven years ago at the Milken Global Conference. And at that time, ESG was uh, kind of like, a, you know, attracted very, you know, the selected group of people. And uh, on the other hand, Vice President Al Gore is talking about the, uh, the climate change and the sustainability revolution. I find it very hard to believe sustainability transition is worse, you know, call it called as a revolution. But ever since, you know, I think it's really worse, you know, that we call it, we should call it a sustainability revolution is happening because it's probably as significant or comes with the same magnitude as the, uh, the industrial revolution. And uh, everybody has to think and act differently <coughs> And particularly the financial industry, I always, you know, the, uh, ask you guys and ask myself to think what kind of role the financial industry played during the last industrial revolution. It was not only like a sitting on the fence and a pick and choose and good ones and, you know, dump the bad ones. They are more proactive accelerating the change uh, to the, uh, the new industrialized uh, the world. So uh, I think the, uh, <clears throat> today... Um, Talking against the ESG almost became like uh, politically incorrect. <laughs> so, uh, you know, six, seven years ago, I actually find it much more difficult to, you know, the, uh, to somebody who really agree that the ESG should be, you know, main or like a core of uh, investment decision or financial decision, also the business decision, you know, strategy decisions. But now it's became totally opposite. So. Now everybody says we do ESG or we take sustainability into our business, business strategy or financial decision making, but when we see enough actions, that's a question. So as far as the, uh, you know, the, all the different you know, ESG issues uh, are concerned, uh, we have been pursuing the, uh, the um, mobilizing the, uh, the finance to uh, accelerate the, to achieve sustainable development goals set by UN members. But also, this year, climate agenda, particularly, uh, you know, the center of discussion due to COP26 uh, taking place uh, at the beginning of next month. And also, this COP26 and also G7, G20 this year is the first 
time that the, all the G7 leaders agreed to the same goal. And that started this year with the President Biden's climate summit and that led us to the G20, G7. And throughout those, the, like a, you know, the series of global discussion, uh, sustainable finance became the, the main topic. Because everybody came to aware, became aware that the, uh, really shifting the world into sustainable you know, society, sustainable economy, we need a huge amount of investment. And uh, that money cannot be financed by tax. So we just need to promote the uh, private investment to promote the uh, shift, the uh, transition. And uh, to do that, ESG became the, uh, the very critical tool or indispensable tool to, uh, to promote the action within the financial or business you know, or institutions. But now we are reaching the point that, hey, okay, okay, we agreed with the ESG, which is important. We agree we need to achieve net zero, but I don't know what to do today. <laughs> and uh, our industry, finance industry in particular, we need to be informed to, make a, to do a good job. Uh, so this year, one of the hottest topic is how to standardize ESG disclosure matrix or climate risk and opportunity you know, disclosure matrix. And you may have heard that the, uh, toward the COP26, uh, the one big, which I hope the, you know, a lot out of that, you know, that new initiative by IFRS, International Financial um, uh, Disclosure Standard, uh, to set up the uh, sustainability disclosure uh, you know, the, uh, framework. So uh, this year, we are going to talk a lot about disclosure, and uh, we are going to push the, uh, the financial industry to use that. To be honest, I really don't need, think the financial industry needs the standardized information for them to start you know, the, uh, investing into the, uh, this, the, these opportunities. But as you demand, we are trying to create the standard. Uh, for the businesses, I don't think you can spend the day now without talking or discussing sustainability in your boardroom or in your executive meeting room. And if you can't spend a day without it, something wrong with your organization. <laughs> you probably have to <laughs> at least, you know, spit sustainability once a day uh, in your leadership meetings. Uh, so we are trying to create the, uh, the, at the UN level and a G20, COP26, trying to help the uh, private businesses, a private, in, a private investor with more data and a more standardized uh, rule book. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that should lead, uh, you know, the uh, whole economy and the whole society move into the uh, direction of sustainability very quick. So 2021 will be a very critical year. And uh, when we look back in uh, 20, 30 years' time, this is probably the year <laughs> we will reflect whether we succeeded in changing the course of our society or our economy or we failed. Exactly. So no pressure to everyone here in the audience, but we have to start doing this now. Um, no, that's great. That's very, uh, I think, gives us a good scene setting. And I think one of the things that you were, points you were making in terms of not letting the perfect get in the way of the good, right? We don't have the standards yet, but that doesn't mean you can't start acting now. And uh, why don't I go to Dan Barclay, who's the CEO of BMO Capital Markets. Dan, you've been advising clients. Um, as a bank, generally, you yourselves have been kind of leading on sustainability, both for, for your own business practice, but also uh, for your clients. And I would love to hear your thoughts, especially because you have companies who are uh, more carbon intensive, um, you know, kind of 
how are you thinking about making that transition and not waiting necessarily for those kind of perfect standards, but, but really starting to um, prepare them for that type of disclosure, that type of data and measurement that they're going to have to do? Yeah, I, uh, thanks for that. Um, I actually think Hero's word on revolution is a great word. Uh, and we'll look back, and I agree with the thesis that 21 will be the inflection point. And the inflection point is really about behavior. And I can tell you in corporate boardrooms across North America and around the world, we've moved from a philosophy of penalty and rules and, you know, think of the word divestment and challenge uh, into a conscious conversation about transition. And we're moving to a world where people are incented to transition. You know, I sit in rooms today and we give advice on, you know, what transition looks like. And a CEO will say to me, we've just put in place this program to adjust our operations, which is lowering our cost and driving up our cash flow. And so when he thinks about doing the right thing for the environment, he's now creating an opportunity set where, in the, in the crass way, the company makes more money. And so if you think about that driving of behavior change, that's a virtuous circle of good, right? Good for the environment, good for the company, good for their investors. And as you watch that cycle change, and whether that's a carbon-intensive industry, whether it's a new business, uh, as you start to see that incentive model start to work, innovation is faster. Change of behavior is faster. Uh, the amount of capital they'll put to work changes rapidly. And so, to me, this is the big year because, you know, when I think about, you know, investor conferences we would have held two years ago, I had lots of people stand up and say, investors don't get it. Now when they stand up, they're competing to say, we will be the best at transition. And that dynamic is going to change behavior quickly. Um, I think we're all on the same page uh, when we think about the transition. It's not a bunch of really big, chunky things. It's billions and billions of little things that make a difference. And if every company does it a little bit better, right, never mind the innovation of new business models, never mind the innovation of new technology, you know, carbon sequestration, we've got lots of new that we need as well. But if every existing business does it a little bit better, we'll be in a great spot by 2050. Now, that may not sound like the crisis we want to create, uh, but as a born natural optimist, when I see the right behaviors, I know right outcomes will follow. And appreciate that, because Dan's coming from Canada, so we, we always appreciate good optimism. I'm a New Yorker, so let me add some pessimism to that for you, Dan. Um, no, I'm just curious if you could uh, talk a little bit about what incentives you see that have really been working, right? We mentioned carbon sequestration and um, yep. 45Q, kind of tax credits and things like that. Wh what are you seeing, as opposed to the penalties, where are you seeing some of those incentives specifically really working? Um, well, let's use... Uh uh, sustainable finance innovation is a, is a good example. And so, uh, believe it or not, it was only in 2019 the first sustainability loan got done in Canada. Uh, and it was tied to uh, transition on behavior in a meat plant. And so it was either lower methane emissions or better operations. Uh, we had the first energy company do a sustainable loan, and some people could say that's not possible, but I would say it is. Uh, and they had three planks uh, to their delivery that they're focused on. The first was on, you know, emissions. The second was gender diversity in the workforce. And third was gender diversity on the board. And so when you think about ESG and not just climate, they were willing to make very public pronouncements about the change of behaviors. They were willing uh, to commit that most publicly in turn of their employees to all their stakeholders. Uh, and then the banks came in and said, if you deliver on your targets, you'll have cheaper financing. Is it materially cheaper? It's not. But what it really is is a set of intents to actually change your behavior. And to me, that's a great example of someone who said, I'm going to be different, I'm going to change. 
That's great. And so I think going back to something that Hero was um, mentioning in terms of um, you know, kind of companies pledging to, to kind of move forward and you were saying kind of uh, do a little bit better each day. I want to go to, to Anthony Pratt, who has been uh, growing businesses now for decades that have already been doing better, right? Have already been kind of uh, had sustainability baked in. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Anthony Pratt is the executive chairman of Visi Industries and Pratt Industries, um, the largest uh, paper mill recycler um, in the world, uh, the private recycler in the world. Um, Anthony, would love to hear a little bit about, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing all these companies want to transition and you guys really have been leading uh, the, the pack for decades. So what are some of the lessons learned that you have from growing that business over the past few, uh, few decades? Well, I came to America in 1991 and I brought with me the recycling technology model that we'd perfected in Australia. And you might say, why didn't our other competitors in America do the same? And the answer is that in America, trees are cheap, and our forested competitors uh, had legacy assets in the forest that their banks wouldn't let them write off. And you can't retrofit an old technology machine with recycling technology that is really uh, state of the art. Then came our initiation fee. For the next 15 years, from 1991 to 2006, we endured the humiliation of our competitors, saying, why would you buy Schlock recycle boxes where you can have our pristine paper boxes made from trees. And then in 2004, Al Gore came out with an inconvenient truth that asserted that recycling is an important weapon against climate change because as things decay in the landfill, they emit methane gas, which is uh, 84 times worse for the environment than CO2. Uh, landfills emit more carbon dioxide than all of global aviation. And a recent McKinsey study showed that Methane gas is responsible for a third of all CO2 emissions. And then Walmart developed a sustainability scorecard where Walmart's vendors had, a, uh, had to have a certain recycled content and we were the only packaging company that were 100% recycled. And then on cue, the whole packaging industry went into cyclical downturn and so we catapulted from number 46, biggest company in the industry, to number five. So in the next 15 years, from 2007 to 2021, our sales grew from $300 million to $3 billion, and that remaining private. And that required a big commitment to reinvest our profits into new plants rather than taking dividends. And in all, we've invested to the value of $10 billion in these manufacturing assets. And I'm proud to have uh, made a pledge uh, initially in 2007 to invest a billion dollars in recycling infrastructure and clean energy infrastructure at the Clinton Global Initiative in sustainable American manufacturing. And then four years ago, I made another pledge to invest $2 billion further into sustainable American manufacturing. And we look forward to continuing to invest. The highlight, uh, this highlights the importance of technology in combating climate change. The Australian technology model that we exported to America was called a milligator, a paper milligator, which was effectively a box factory, cardboard box factory like Amazon uses, inside a paper mill. And unlike our competitors who had their mills in the forests and their box plants in the cities. So having the box factory inside the paper mill enabled a better nursing of the pre-loved fibres into the shape of a box that was just as strong as any box made from trees. And this was great for economics for our customers. Uh, it was a low-cost product and it was one that we built a sustainability narrative around. And, and that narrative was that recycling is an important weapon against climate change. 
And after all, it's wasteful to chop down a tree to make a box when you can make one out of recycled paper. And I can't overemphasize the importance of technology in being able to accomplish this. In fact, now we've built five out of America's last seven paper mills, all 100% recycled, and we're now the only major 100% recycled uh, paper company in the United States. And in doing so, we've created 10,000 well-paying American green jobs doing it. And many of them are in the Midwest, so-called Rust Belt states, where we're part of the jobs and investment renaissance. And we've just announced our sixth 100% recycled paper mill in Kentucky with Governor Bashir, which uh, is a half, will be a billion dollar paper mill built in Kentucky. And so we're, we're hoping to be one of the people leading the push for onshoring of quality American manufacturing jobs and building new mills has been the key. Because while the average age of a paper mill in America is 50 years old, this technology has enabled us to turn the most adulterated waste that was previously going to landfills into corrugated cardboard boxes. And it's also enabled us to make lighter weight boxes, not just recycled boxes, which means further savings for our customers. So we never enjoyed what Bill Gates refers to as the green premium. In fact, it was the green discount. If we hadn't uh, of kept uh, reduce, relentlessly reducing our cost position, we never would have revolutionised sustainability in our industry. Excellent. And I think one of the things that you mentioned there in terms of the, the job creation component of it just emphasizes the connection between the environmental impact as well as the social impact, right? So thinking about how you transition communities who were traditionally coal or steel and transitioning them to a green economy, right? So um, I think a very important point. And in kind of thinking about the recycling component of it, Jorge, if I can go to you next, obviously, um, uh, Jorge Mesquita, who is the CEO of Blue Triton Group, which is formerly Nestle Water uh, North America. So, Jorge, you're in the business of sustainability as well, obviously, in terms of being a water company. Um, you guys are a part of the Alliance for Water Stewardship, but you also, um, you know, obviously have challenges in terms of your need for innovation in better plastics um, and thinking about kind of the recycling component of it. So would love to hear your experience, and I know that you're new <laughs> to the position, but would love to hear your experience and kind of how you guys are trying to uh, sort of think about sustainability, not just as a broad framework, but really with some specific targets in mind. Sure. You know, I, I think the company I serve has done a lot of good work over the years to you know, be sustainably and purposeful, uh, and, and we're very proud of the progress made. But... As Dan said, you know, we have to take our game to the next level in order to meet our, our, our goals for the future. And what I've learned over the years, not only in this job but in other companies, is it's really important to focus and to choose, right? ESG is such a broad agenda, and if you try to do too many things, you're going to move incrementally and really not, you know, move the needle in any significant way. So that's, that's what we have decided to do. We, in our company right now, we have three big areas of focus. The first one is plastic and how do we move entirely to recyclable plastic. Our goal is 100% by the end of the decade, 50% by the middle of the decade. It's not going to be easy. As you know, the resin market is very tight uh, and it's going to require, as Anthony said very well, a transformational innovation. Uh, but that's a big, big priority for us. And not only get 100% recyclable, we have a goal 
that by the end of the decade, we will collect as much plastic as we sell. So that's one big area. The other one is to continue to be you know, very responsible and set the highest standards for water sourcing. We are heavily embedded in the communities that we serve. We have you know, a really strong team of geologists, hydrogeologists, engineers that work with the communities to really source water responsibly and make sure that we do so within our permits and, and again, with the highest standards. And then transportation. Um, you know, we want to have 80% of our transportation fleet on alternative fuels, fuels by the end of the decade as well. So it's, you know, it's in our way, these are the areas that are most relevant for our business model, the areas that matter the most for our consumers. And uh, that's why we're going to be focusing. And by, I believe by focusing, we can really make a lot more progress. I'll give you another example. The, the company that I serve on the board of Mondelez, better known as the makers of Oreos and Cadbury chocolate. Huge company with a massive global footprint. A lot going on there in ESG, but they focused on two things. Responsible cocoa sourcing and reforestation. Right? So that is my only point is here. In order to make progress, you've got to focus, have specific, ambitious goals, and then plans to get you there. Fantastic. And I want to come back um, in a minute to talk a little bit about the challenge on the investment side, the financing side, in terms of the new technologies. But Shelly, I want to go to you next. Um, Shelly Shanker, who's the co-founder and, and managing partner of AIM Partners. Obviously, you are, you are investing in the new technologies that we need, that companies need to transition. We've heard about the innovation that's needed. We've heard about the focus that's needed. And at the same time, it's a challenge to, to grow and scale these technologies to get to commercialization where everyone needs them to be to really integrate them into their businesses. So we'd love to hear from you kind of what you're seeing in terms of some examples of those new technologies. It's not just solar and wind anymore, right? We really need to step up what we're investing in. Um, and love to hear a little bit about, about that and maybe some of the challenges you see in getting investment in this kind of missing middle uh, group of technologies. Sure. So we have a fairly high bar. We look to invest in companies that are not only reducing greenhouse gases, but are also providing access and equity, as well as creating jobs in local communities. So from that perspective, there are a couple of themes in the portfolio we are, so we are kind of excited about right now. Um, low carbon footprint of food uh, to meet the growing demand for food is one of the priority areas for us. Using current agriculture and especially animal agricultural practices to meet the growing food demand is likely going to re lead to severe greenhouse gases, biodiversity, water pollution issues. So we have been looking at enabling technologies um, like fermentation, and even in fermentation, we're looking at things like solid-state fermentation, which does not need the big infrastructure, steel, bioreactors that other types of fermentations need. And there are companies like At Last Foods that are taking mycelium or mushrooms and growing alternatives to bacon, alternatives to seafood, not only at cost parity, but also as a scale that's needed. These products are meeting taste, texture, nutrition, and other criteria that the consumers care about. But the products are using a fraction of land, fraction of water, fraction of resources, and in addition to that, they're using some of the waste feedstock from farms as their feedstock. 
So from that perspective, they're also not just creating jobs, but also creating a product that's needed in the market. But what we are really excited about from scalability perspective, that they're able to produce a product at cost parity with the existing products, and sometimes at better unit economics. Another company that we were looking at primarily for some of the topics that were brought up earlier on in terms of transparency, measuring your own carbon footprint, and we have an investment called Supply Shift, and what they're doing is collecting data and reporting on um, scope three emissions. 80 to 90% of the emissions in the supply chain are coming from supply chains, but most companies are neither able to monitor or have an idea of how to calculate them. And this company is able to provide them scope three emissions data at the supply level. And from supplier's perspective, the suppliers are able to do a few tweaks and be able to see their own carbon footprint. And the companies can see not just the carbon footprint of the products, but they can also see things like DNI metrics. They can see labor practices. They can see deforestation, water use, and some of the other related areas. And in terms of talking about positive incentives, the suppliers are able to present their benchmark data versus their competitors to clients and have been able to create more business for themselves. So that's a positive incentive for them to not just report, but to continuously measure and update their data, because they're also finding that it's easier for them to access sustainable financing or get renewable energy access if they're able to monetize and monitor that data. Another company we are really excited about is not just sequestering carbon, but it has also come up with alternatives to some of the more carbon-intensive traditional materials like steel and cement. So it's, it's gratifying to see these products on the ground that are not just, uh, just innovative, but they're actually in the market already. That's great. I think the, the seafood example um, in particular is really interesting because you're talking about the kind of sustainability of our ecosystems, right? Thinking about the health of the people consuming it, but it's also traditionally uh, the seafood industry has had quite a, quite a bit of um, challenge in terms of labor, right? So forced labor in their supply chain. So you're looking at a whole host of environmental and social issues that you can solve, um, but that's important to then also make sure you have the right metrics to show, right, uh, to, to tell that story. I'm curious on the kind of financing side, though, just to stick with you, Shelley, for a minute, as we've talked about, the new technologies oftentimes do have that kind of uh, valley of death, right? Where they, it's not yet commercial uh, scale, it's not yet kind of at the solar and wind level where investors are, are comfortable with the technology risk. You guys are targeting uh, top quartile market rate returns. You have impact in your fund, but you are not at all meant to be concessionary in any way. And yet there is a need for concessionary capital in this space, right? So talk a little bit about what you're seeing or what you wish you would see investors be willing to do or take on in terms of the risk return profile to help these companies really get to scale. Sure. So we've been doing climate tech investing for almost 10 years. So we always joke we were doing it before it was hip to do it. <laughs> and one thing we've seen is that companies that are trying to solve complex climate change problems or serious climate change problems that are not in well-funded sectors like transportations, transportation or energy or biotech, they really find it hard to raise capital. If they're not doing software, they find it hard to raise capital. And the capital scarcity is even worse for companies that are headed by women or people of color. 
And in this life cycle of a company, initially they do have access to grants, they do have access to uh, angel networks initially. And then at the extreme end of the life cycle, once they are profitable, when they have closer visibility to exits, there are a lot of funds willing on the, waiting on the sidelines to invest in them. In fact, our team concluded that about over 1,000 funds with under a billion dollars under management have made at least one climate change investment deal. So they're waiting on the sidelines, but the criteria is very strict in terms of the revenues they need, the amount of checks they can raise. So from that perspective, the missing middle continues to be a place where capital and resources are missing. I would say there is, there is fiscal rigor that investment brings, so we like being in this space and we like being investors. There are times for policy, for metrics, that grant funding is needed, but we always find best, and if it's a for-profit company, to be able to progress moving forward using the fiscal discipline of investment is typically really best. But I would say, I think this missing middle, I think there's an opportunity for returns. We started investing in 2018 in some of the sectors like alternative proteins, sequestration of carbon, data and security, which Today, those companies have raised $125 for every dollar we invested in. So the dollars have come in, but they come in a little too late. I wish they would come in sooner and help these companies scale a little bit faster. Um, but, but the capital is there at the sidelines, so we do hope that more capital moves from sidelines to the main street. <laughs> so Hiro, if I can put you on the spot, since you're, since you're no longer the CIO, but to that point, Obviously, you guys have um, a certain level of comfort with risk, um, but a limited amount, right? And so I'm curious what you think would have, would have been appropriate for GPIF to look at in terms of an investment, let's say the cement company that, that Shally was mentioning. Um, do you see a time when investors like large pension funds are going to become more comfortable with looking at these types of investments? Because we're talking about everybody giving up a little bit of something, right? Mm -hmm. Companies are having to give up a little bit of something. So we're, the communities are, we're all paying more for this. Do you see a time when investors are going to be a little bit more flexible with their capital? Well, I think the, uh, it depends on the way that, you know, so their constituency or their, you know, the work, you know, environment they are operating in. Uh, you know, the, some of the investor can go more extreme on, so like a social environment impact when they choose their investment opportunities. On the other hand, the, the pension fund, like a public pension fund, GPIF culprits, they are more strictly, uh, you know, like sort of limited to make a financial, make an investment decision based on just a financial return. That's what they used to call it fiduciary duty. Right. Uh, what I think the, uh, the, you know, I see the hope uh, in the way, you know, the, our industry is now transforming or capital market is transforming is, you know, it, we used to discuss that the, these kind of impact or something to do, something, you know, something good for environment as a cost to the business or the cost to the investors. But now it's becoming more opportunities. And at the same time, I think the gap between the way the market priced the opportunity or the investment and the long-term, you know, the externality, positive and negative, of that investment, uh, investment opportunities is actually the narrowing their gap. So uh, 
if the people, you know, the more ESG integration ES, you know, investor uses, uh, regardless of the, what type of investor on that spectrum I just uh, the, uh, described, uh, the gap between the, uh, the social or the externality of that investment and intern, you know, internal financial return at a risk will continue to, you know, the, uh, the, uh, to, to merge. So, uh, you know, we already saw some of the uh, sort of ESG-related default cases. <laughs> So uh, if the other uh, some company is not very good at the uh, the ESG, actually the, uh, they actually push their business into default situation, right? So uh, you don't need to wait until their business really you know their negative externality of that business uh, materialize in 20, 30 years time. So not only because of the uh, the actual uh, natural disaster they're hitting us. But uh, investors' mindset is, if they see negative impact of like, uh, you know, weakness in the, some businesses' ESG, they can translate that into today's valuation. And uh, with more and more uh, you know, uh, ESG-related or you know, the ESG you know, the disclosure matrix or information, that gap will continue to shrink. So uh, at this point of time, we have to be careful because they are used to trying to keep me distant from the uh, impact investment because I knew I would only attract a lot of criticism saying like, oh, GPF-CFO become more social activist <laughs> or like environmental activist. But now if you see the gap, it's, it's narrowing. And uh, I was very encouraged by uh, Dan's statement, like, uh, you know, now it's really changing. Everybody see that an opportunity. And uh, look, you know, particularly climate, this is a guaranteed growth right. area. Right. Only, you know, if you just add up how much fiscal spending already committed by G7 leaders and G7 leaders, it's going to be trillion. And uh, when you talk about the, uh, the necessary investment, you are not throwing that money into the water or into the sea. Right. If you invest or if you cost, somebody will receive that money for their own business opportunities too. So uh, we really need to change the mindset. It's just uh, trying to just, uh, you know, uh, segregate like impact, financial return, or, you know, risk and return. Everything is more integrating and it's, it's, it's actually merging into the one, uh, one core value, which is a value to the society and a value to the system. So what I like about ESG and SDGs is you cannot solve one problem by itself. Right. You know, now we right. talk about, when we talk about uh, the uh, energy transition, we talk about the, uh, the fair transition of their labor force. When we talk about auto industry, we talk about the, uh, the impact on the, uh, the community where they have a big factory. So everything should be discussed together, and that's happening. That's great. I think, Dan, if I could just quickly go to you um, before maybe um, grilling Anthony a little bit on, on his financing. Because we were talking about earlier this concept of stranded assets, and Hero was just mentioning, if we're, if we're thinking about this and assessing valuations based off of what potentially might be 30 years down the road a, a default because of a you know, kind of less sustainable business practice, I'm curious your thoughts about this concept of stranded assets and would we get there? Or do you think that, do you have optimism, again, <laughs> that, the, that the companies are, are going to shift enough where maybe things, maybe these assets won't be stranded, stranded, quote unquote? Yeah, I was just, uh, just permit me, I'm gonna connect a dot uh, in earlier, which is we think about the word corporate purpose. And I think there's a couple of sessions today on that. And you know, once upon a time, the corporate purpose was drive the most value for the shareholder, right? And I don't think I know too many corporations where that's how they define themselves today. Right, you know, BMO's purpose is to boldly grow the good in business and life. Right, that doesn't sound like a bank. 
And when we take a look at that stakeholder analysis today or what we look into, what we have to deliver as an institution in our communities, we've changed a lot. You know, I think about the investment business. You know, what investor today doesn't have a social lens or a climate lens to what they're doing? It doesn't mean they're solely there. It doesn't mean they're a social activist, but they're no longer looking at it. And you could look at it with the risk or the opportunity lens as you look at that. Um, to your point on stranded assets, uh, the dynamic that I look at today is around how does it get priced and how does it get financed? And so if you knew today a business was going to fall off a cliff in three years, right, I'm making that up, you're not going to get financed, right? And so when we think about this concept of stranded assets, it's the idea that I put a large investment into the ground that cannot be returned. Uh, energy transition is a good example, right? Energy uh, is going to transition over the next 30 to 100 years away from fossil fuels. We can think that it will be accelerated, but until we have, you know, the replacement energy, and I think we're going to have a really challenging next 24 months, we're seeing it in Europe today, where the investment in new hasn't made up for the loss of investment in old. And so in commodity worlds, I mean, prices just go up. That's where they go. And so when you think about a stranded asset uh, in that context, if you've got highly volatile commodity prices, there'll be periods of time where they're worth a lot of money. And there'll be periods of time where they're worth less money. And I think those are the things we'll watch. And so I don't like to think of it in terms of stranded assets. I think it's capital is going to move. And uh, to Hero's comment earlier, you think about the valuation of energy companies, it's the lowest spin in history, right? And that's actually the movement of capital out of the industry into other places. And so it's pricing itself through risk or opportunity into the market. So in sticking with this theme of, of looking 30 years down the road and kind of uh, looking at kind of longer term, kind of flexible capital, Anthony, we'd love to hear from you a little bit more about some of the background in terms of the financing you were able to get um, and kind of the green financing that you were able to get to expand, as we've talked about with, with Shally, the, the challenge in trying to get new industries and new technologies to scale. And you guys were able to access, go to the markets, and, and access financing um, that was a bit more creative and, and useful for you guys. So talk a little bit about that. Yes, we uh, financed ourselves in America largely through what are known as green bonds, and that means that we borrowed 30-year debt, not from banks, but from pension funds. What fueled it was, thanks to Mike Milken, our discovery of 30-year debt with fixed low interest rate and mortgage-style amortization, which enabled us to remain privately owned in a very capital-intensive industry, the paper industry. And we were uniquely able to access them, access them because they were called green bonds, which required that the waste paper otherwise would have gone to landfill. The waste paper was our raw material would have otherwise gone to landfill, and we had to prove that. And in fact, as a result of that, we've built five out of America's last seven paper mills, all 100% recycled, and we're now the only uh, paper company in America that's 100% recycled. And as I said, I was proud to announce last month with Go Kentucky Governor Bashir that our sixth 100% recycled paper mill will be built in Henderson, Kentucky. And the green bonds are 30-year debt with mortgage-style amortization at a flat interest rate of 5% with no refinancing risk, which is a big thing. And the interest on the bonds are tax-free in the hands of the bondholder. Mm. And without the access to these green bonds, we would not have had the courage or the appetite to make the billions of dollars of investment to enable us to grow in this very uh, capital-intensive industry. And because we've delivered five paper mills on time and on budget, in our uh, last bond offering, uh, which was to raise $250 million, 
we were oversubscribed by $4.7 billion. America is the only country with the tenor and secondary bond market to borrow this way, and accessing pension funds are vital to the transition to sustainability. That's great. I think, obviously, there's a, a huge demand, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, how oversubscribed the issuance is, but I think there's also um, an inherent nature, as you've talked about, of the greenness of your business, right? There is a challenge sometimes with greenwashing, uh, in, the, in the green bond market and in sustainable investing, largely speaking. So it's great to hear how, how that has helped um, in uh, the kind of uh, interest from the investors has helped you guys. Jorge, I'd love to hear from you and your perspective. As you said earlier, kind of thinking about the financing that's needed, Anthony just mentioned some of the flexibility that they were able to get, but you mentioned margins and how tight things are. And so how, as a company, are you thinking about using your balance sheet to invest in new technologies or try to drive some of that innovation given the market complexities that you have? Sure. Yeah, so I've been around the consumer products industry for 30-some years, and one constant that has been true throughout is increasingly consumers are choosing which brands they select, which brands they prefer, based on their sustainability profile. And I would say that that trend is only accelerating with every you know, successful, successive generation, and especially the younger, younger consumers. And ultimately, the consumer is boss, the consumer who will decide. And so, historically, my first available dollar that I had to invest to grow our brands would go, you know, reflexively to marketing and promotion and demand generation activities. But if you have some vulnerabilities in terms of your sustainability profile, and you don't address it first. All of these investments, it, they're going to go over people's heads. They're not, just not going to choose you. Right. So we just need to think about investments in sustainability, strengthening our profile as a necessary part of strengthening our competitiveness in the eyes of the consumer and our preference in the eyes of the consumer. And we need to accept that there will be investments in packaging uh, technology in other areas that improve our sustainability profile because that is the most important criteria for them to select which brand they choose. That applies to capital as well. We have a lot of needs to build capacity to grow our business to meet the growing demand that we see in the large economy. Uh, we have a lot of needs in analytics and digital technology. Uh, but sustainability has risen to that same level of focus and priority, again, because the consumer is really making very clear choices on that basis. So it's, it's part driven by our purpose and our desire to do good while we compete, but it's also because we have no choice. The consumer is dictating, they're calling the shots, and we need to meet their needs. And do you think you have the ability, Hero was mentioning, uh, kind of pricing in these externalities, right? So pricing in uh, what you're kind of willing to invest because you see the market potential. Certainly we've heard when, nets, when companies come out and make net zero pledges, their stock prices increase, there's a halo effect. I'm curious as a company how you guys are thinking about actually modeling what that consumer kind of value and demand is on the sustainability front in terms of your market share. Sure. Well, you know, I, I think the most important thing here is the reality is, as we strengthen our overall sustainability profile, we're going to have to accept, you know, on occasion, low returns on investment that are going to be not as attractive as alternative choice. 
And this is why for us it's so important that we don't put all of our eggs in one basket, but that we have several irons in the fire of new technologies, new approaches, that we can validate quickly and determine which ones are the ones we can scale in a way that is economically effective. This is why Anthony and I were talking just before this. We live in Manhattan, Hive's card. I'm dying to meet with them and, and with our teams to try to sort out you know, some of the things that they're working on. What else can we do? So I think it's, it's not just about investment. It's about investment in transformational technologies that can allow us to get a return uh, that is sufficiently attractive. It's great, and you were mentioning potential collaboration here, which we love to facilitate at the Milken Institute Global Conference. But in, in the last few minutes that we have, we'd love for each of you to talk a little bit about maybe one thing you are most excited about or one thing that you really see that is critical that we need, if it's a policy, if it's better carbon accounting, um, if it's more flexible financing. What do we need? Because many of the folks in this audience could be potential partners, right? You all should be kind of talking about this as you go to, to lunch later. What can we do to be collaborating? So would love to hear from, from each of you some of your thoughts of what's the most important thing we do next? Next at, at 11 o'clock, next, next week, next year. Uh, Shelly, why don't I start with you? Sure. So one of the areas we've been focusing on is the oceans, like 70% of our planet is oceans, and only 20% has been studied or analyzed. So really excited about an upcoming investment, which is using data analytics, AI, ML, and robotics to be able to provide real-time information to industries in the area. Uh, but also actually really excited about the amount of attention ocean as a tool for decarbonization is getting at COP26. And this is the first time so much attention has been paid to it. So really excited about that. Great. Anthony, I know there's quite a few areas where you guys see kind of the real importance in, in tackling next. So I'd love to hear from you as well. Well, I think the, the continuing um, increasing in uh, the focus on uh, methane gas. I think methane gas is one third. A McKinsey study recently said that methane gas accounts for a third of all uh, carbon emissions, whether it's through the waste management industry, uh, you know, landfills emit more carbon methane than global aviation, um, whether it's the agricultural industry or whether it's the oil and gas industry, methane is, is huge. And I think that um, our sort of, you know, uh, goal is to halve landfills and um, double the recycled content in, in, in all manufactured products. And that's, uh, we're very excited about, about that. Amazing. Hero, why don't I go to you next in, in terms of, again, uh, maybe on your corporate board position or through the work you're doing with the UN, are there one or two things that you're most excited about seeing? Um, as, you, as we said, this is a landmark year, so what are you most excited about seeing next? Well, you know, the, the board I'm serving, Tesla and Danone, and, uh, you know, the, all the other, you know, the financial institutions I work with and, and also UN, the other, you know, political leadership, Everybody talking about the sustainability, which is good. And this year, more and more people started talking about 2050 net zero or carbon neutral. And uh, if you go back to your, you know, your organization, whichever it is, and if your organization hasn't committed to uh, net zero 2050 scenario, that's the first thing I would like to hear. Because the reason why the, the capital market really struggled to price all these kind of things into the today's market is we haven't really agreed the base case scenario is going to be net zero. 
right? So uh, I think that if this year more people join Race to Zero, that's the UN convened the, uh, you know, the initiative, and also the, at the Glasgow COP26, we are uh, gathering the, all the financial leaders from all the different sectors to make a, a joint statement. We commit to net zero scenario and we align our business to 2050 net zero. And that will really change the way they price you know, each investment. So without uh, the consensus on the base case trajectory to net zero, we won't be able to price it properly. So uh, please uh, you know, the, go back to your organization to see if they haven't committed to the net zero 2050, that's the first thing you have to do. And once it's done, you know, market will shift directly uh, to align themselves with the Paris Agreement. Fantastic. Jorge? Yeah, I'd like to just address social sustainability as an area that is critically important too. I, I'm honored to be on the board of Humana that I joined earlier this year. And, you know, there was a really interesting study they did about what are the greatest root causes for um, health problems for consumers and for people in, in the United States. And they identified three areas. One is isolation, being isolated, being alone. Um, second is food security and proper nutrition. And the third one is lack of mobility, inability to, to transport yourself around, which kind of relates to isolationism. And so they decided they're going to focus on those three things with great intent, with great purpose, and really investing uh, to address these three root cause reasons for why the outcomes aren't as, as well as it should be. And obviously, this has been exacerbated by the pandemic. But even prior to it, the, the economic divide in America is creating a lot of issues for people to have, you know, the, again, minimum social interaction, transportation, and food security, which is hard to accept given this, the robustness of the economy and how it's grown. So I just think that all of us as companies need to ask ourselves, what are the areas where we can focus on to really not only address the environment and climate change, but address the social sustainability challenges that we face? Definitely. And as we've seen, as you mentioned, going through this pandemic the past year and a half, I think we've seen much more sense of urgency, right, in terms of, of acting um, in putting kind of solutions forward. Dan, you're, you're the optimist. So you have, uh, in, in the few minutes we have left, um, what, are, what are one or two things that you're most excited about or wish everyone would walk out of here and do? Well, now I want to be the pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, uh, I'm going to circle back to something Hero said earlier, which is around data. Um, if you think about a, the challenge for a big bank, it's scope three emissions, uh, which really means what are the emissions of your clients, which then becomes the emissions of their supply chain. And what you'll find, uh, the minute you start to crack that open and say, I'm going to get in and figure that out, uh, what you realize is you have no reliable information. And it's not none, that's, that's an overstatement, but it becomes challenging. And we can talk about standardization, we can talk about clarity, we can talk about different information sources. Um, and the optimism that comes out of that is that once you have data and information, you can actually plan a change. And I've seen it time and time again, when you have information you didn't have before, and let's say it's showing you something in plastics, you will make a change to something different. And that, to me, is the thing that gives me optimism. That cycle today of generating reliable, consistent, and comparable data across systems is really, really starting to accelerate. And the more we have, the faster we can change. As many of you know, if, if you've participated in the Global Conference before, we love to share data with you as much as possible. So um, please join me in thanking the panelists here today and for their 
fantastic information and, and data that they've provided. Thank you so much. Please enjoy the rest of the conference. There are a whole host of other panels on sustainability so that we can throw even more data at you. So please enjoy. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.